to another episode of The Drunk, the podcast where four academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics. All the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes or when we are each still in our own homes because we are trying to keep ourselves or loved ones and even people we don't like safe and healthy. And we truly hope that you all are doing the same. And want to give a shout out to Dr. Kizzy Corbett, who is one of the scientists responsible for the Moderna vaccine, one of the two vaccines so far that have been shown to be 90% effective. So there is hope on the horizon, but not yet. So please keep staying safe. I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Uh, Crystal? I'm Crystal Moten. I am a public historian who lives and works in the Washington, D.C. area. Todd? I am Todd Lawrence. I teach uh, African-American literature and culture, folklore, and cultural studies at the University of St. Thomas. Adriana. I am Adriana Estel. I teach English and American studies at Carleton College, and I wear a mask. I hope you do too, and I am so excited about this, these vaccines. Counting Woo! down days. Save and us. June. And we're also, <laughs> whatever, whatever. Uh, and we're also excited because today is Adriana's birthday. Yay! Happy birthday! Woo! Happy birthday! Yeah, it's your you. birthday. Happy birthday <laughs> to you. Yeah. Happy birthday. Woo! Yay! Okay, this is the best birthday ever. <laughs> We are going to be talking about Sherry Demeline's newest novel, Empire of Wild. Demeline is a member of the Georgian Bay Métis community in Ontario. Her 2017 book, The Marrow Thieves, which is a young adult novel set in a dystopian future, and it's amazing, y'all should check it out, won the Governor General's Award and the prestigious Kirkus Prize for Young Readers. It was a finalist for the White Pine Award and was on the fan favorite for the CBC's 2018 Canada Reads. Uh, her newest novel, which is the one we're going to be talking about, has already become a Canadian bestseller and was named Indigo Number One's Best Book of 2019. She's currently working on a new young adult novel, uh, another adult uh, novel, and then the sequel to The Marrow Thieves, apparently. So I'm excited to look. For, I'm excited to kind of read that when that comes out. So have you read the Have you read The, the Marrow Thieves? Thieves? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, I definitely. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. Yeah, I've read it. I'm acting like we're not doing a podcast right now. Hey, Anita, I have a question. Can I interrupt you and ask it? I'm sorry. This is just Todd. This is how he is. (laughs) No, I have read it. I definitely recommend it. Um, Especially, yeah, just given like everything happening right now with the virus. But um, it's really good. So uh, as I was saying before, Todd interrupted me. Spoiler alert, Uh, before we dig in, just a reminder that we, when we discuss our books, we will talk about everything. As you know, we may call it, uh, as you should know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective. So consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. Uh, So, you know, in other words, we're all about the spoilers and not about the summaries. We spoil everything. Speaking of the spoilers, we're going to start with the ending, because what? (laughs) What (laughs) happens? (laughs) I was like thinking both about like the ending with like the, you know, sort of with Zeus and then obviously the ending with Ajit. I was like, what, what, what happened? 
So did Zeus get taken by the Rogaru? Is that what happens? I think so. I think that's, so. that's and you know, it, I it, that's what it seems to me, and it seems like he gets taken because of those uh, ill feelings he has towards his mom. Is that right? Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, because he says that actually, right? Uh, he knew he had been taken. This is uh, two ninety-two. He knew he had been taken because he hated his mother. He tried to explain it, the hows and the whys of the feeling, but there was no mercy to be had. <sighs> yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. He just—I mean, he's a kid. He was just like in a moment of anger right. said that. Right. He's like my favorite character. Yes, I too. I loved him with his little yes. uh, broken. You know, uh, what is it? The this Walkman. Walkman, CD yeah. Player, like, yeah, yeah, CD yeah. Player. His little CD player, his little <laughs> little duct tape CD CD player, and um, yeah, I was I was sad too, but may I mean I don't know. Do you guys have ideas like why do that um, at the end? Because that's not, yeah. I mean, I wonder. Do you think that that it's not as if that was a sort of necessity for the plot, plot or anything? Yeah. So do, how do we understand, you know, sort of what, what that brings to the book? Why do that at the very end? Because could have been she gets Victor back, she goes and she gets Zeus, they go home happy ever after, mm-hmm. but, but it's not. And of course, it ends with the, the next, that final. Yeah, what was bit, that? Right? Where, so I, I'm not... Okay, I'm not. She was like putting sure. out the the bone salt, right? And the, but then she's, uh, pe- she's preparing for an assault, right? Right, right. Well, and she she says, um, "I hope you're almost home." And it sounds like she's talking to Joan, right? right. Oh my girl, I hope you're almost <gasps> home. Right. He is, and I don't know how long I can hold him. I see. Okay, but we okay. kind so, of like so. so I think it's Zeus. Question. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Okay, and and I was thinking maybe ending this way to kind of paint the picture that there's a, the danger never ends and the danger is always close to you and it, mm-hmm. it just continues the cycle continues is one way i was um thinking oh about and that who gets who gets them out of the cycle it's the women right mm-hmm. who have to come together who have to confront the rougarou um and and in, it sounds like you know, especially like in the early part of the novel when they're talking about these stories of the the, the Rougarou, I'm, I'm on page four. Um, when the people forgot what they had asked for in the beginning, a place to live and for the community to grow in a good way, the Rougarou remembered, and he returned on padded feet, light as stardust on the newly paved road. And that Rougarou, heart full of his own stories, but his belly empty, he came home not just to haunt he also came to hunt. So like, you know, he's the enforcer making sure that the community actually continues to build, right? And to, well, to be a, proactive. Right, and, yeah, I think that's really a good way to think about the, cause you think about um, the Rougarou as a sort of monster, just sort of a horror monster that kills and does whatever it does only motivated by its own hunger or its own evil or whatever. But it then you can think about most monsters have a kind of, underlying reason or logic that they come into our sort of consciousness consciousness or into our culture and in this case the Ruguru has this um function of sort of like pushing people towards what they should be doing so it's right. when you sort of 
when you get disconnected from traditional ways, when you start to even engage in, you know, transgressive behavior, um, when you get, um, when you move away from your family, that's when you're most vulnerable to the Rogaroo. And so the threat of the Rogaroo, like threats of most monsters, like boogeymen and everything like that, is to keep people in tradition, to keep people sort of acting within a traditional framework, right? Or at least just like respectful ways to, right? Cause like Robe, right? Um, mm -hmm. So Robe basically was like, I left him, and this is 286, right? Um, and it says like, I left him buried in the field where he forced himself onto his little cousin. He doesn't need anyone's help anymore, right? right. Or at like right. the beginning where Adriana was on page four kind of talking about how, right? For boys, he was the worst thing you could ever be. Mm -hmm. You must remember to ask and follow her lead. You don't want to turn into the Roguru. And mm -hmm. it's like, so I think it's like tradition, but also just like this notions of like respect, right? Like respecting yeah. elders, respecting women. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things though, about that last page 298, when um, Angelique is, is, you know, gathering these things or it's, or it's not, sorry, Ajin, it's not Angelique, Ajin. Ajin is gathering uh, the, the bone salt and starting to protect herself is that, um, she looks out and the window casts the shadow of wild fur over her face, which also like really um, suggests so strongly how the Ruguru is also within her, right? That like all of them have the Ruguru within them in some ways. Mm. Wow, I didn't, even, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, that's a great point. Mm -hmm. And then we also know that the Ruguru, when they're first turned into a Ruguru, I think it's, um, uh, what's his name? Heiser says, they're hard to control right. right? when they first turn. And so when Victor first turns, he actually goes and kills, right. uh, kills Joan's grandmother, Mare, yeah. right? right. But so there's this, uh, it's super interesting, right? So as a Rougarou, there's a call towards yeah. home, right? But then it's yeah. also right. destructive and dangerous, right? Yeah. At the same time that the Rougarou itself is a sort of um, warning or sort of push towards those sort of that particular way of being be, behaving in a way that's not destructive to mm -hmm. you know the people at home or your family or your right. community but heiser is like somebody who like controls the roguru right like he controls sort of is that like his what is that term yeah, that he uses the, the wolf wanger yeah. uh wolf wolf yeah wolf singer singer yeah. Okay. Because I did wonder about the grandma's German. death, right? Like, yes, it was like Victor maybe going home, but I was like, also, was like Kaiser controlling it by them? Because remember, like, the grandma is part of like the group of elders who was like very much against the pipelines. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of wondering whether like it was you know just Victor like going back home and like it becomes destructive, or whether Heiser was like behind. Well, so so Heiser, yeah. I mean, I think Heiser, especially with regards to the whole sort of church thing, right? I mean, that's he's basically the developer. Right. And he's using the church to disconnect um, native people from their from their traditional lands, right? So that he right. can feel them more easily. And yeah. I think this is like you know that's a theme that goes throughout the throughout the book that you know one of the ways that native people become disconnected from who they are and what is is rightfully theirs is through Christianity, right? That um, Christianity is sort of kind of monstrous um, and it is part of a sort of ongoing colonization that's still taking place, right? That the land is still being taken from them bit by bit. Um, and of course, like Victor, that's the thing they're arguing about before he right. leaves and become and gets turned into the a rubber, right? Is yeah. that he wants, he suggests that she sell her um, land and he doesn't understand why she can't even consider something like that. It doesn't even, it's not even possible for her. 
Yeah. Did you want to, um, you shared with us the quote, I forget who you said it was from, but about like colonialism. Oh yeah. And this is from a, from a um, interview uh, that I was reading with the uh, Cherie de Moline, where she basically, she just said the, author, the, yeah. the church continues to be culpable in ongoing colonization. And I, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, she's sort of talking about, um, I think the interview was asking her wh- where did this whole sort of like tent church tent revival thing come from? And so she's talking about that. And she, she said this in that, in that, uh, in that statement. And I thought it was interesting because a lot of people think of colonialization or colonization as being, done something that has ended and to think of it as something that is ongoing right that there's maybe think about all the fights against pipelines and you know um, still movements and fights over um, traditional lands um, that this is something that's still happening native people's lands is still is in the process of being taken from them they're you know disconnecting them from their culture that's still happening um, and it's happening as a sort of product of capitalism, modernization, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this brings me to like another uh, something I was thinking about with this book. I mean, that title, um, Empire of Wild, and thinking about um, wildness or the idea of wildness and how, of course, you know, sort of historically speaking and culturally speaking, um, Native people have been seen as wild, right? Like in need of domestication or of some sort of civilization, civilizing, yeah, that sort of thing. Which I think and, church is like very much a part of, right? Right, right. So oh. that in the, in the the preacher talks, I mean, Reverend Wolf, who is a Native person, is speaking to this congregation of Native people about why they need to give up all the things that make them wild and sort of give themselves over to Jesus, you know, give themselves over to create to uh, Christianity in a way that would sort of domesticate them or civilize them. And so there's, the book is not sort of against the wild. The book is sort of in some ways thinking about how the wild is good, how the wild is in the characters in the book. And maybe we need to sort of think about like, what's the difference between the wildness of the Rogaru or the wildness of this sort of monstrous thing and the, and the wildness, which is a part or is perceived by certain people to be in native people, right? I think that's a really good distinction to make, right? The um, the wildness that, um, that the Rogaru represents and that is kind of well-known in the community that, um, that serves as a kind of um, code of behavior, right? Like on, on those early pages, we get this whole uh, set of kind of behaviors that the Ruguru is gonna come and, and punish you for, right? If, uh, and they're all about things that kind of break these, these codes. So broke Lent, slept with a married woman, talked back to your mom, which is now looking back at that line. Yeah, it's like a foreshadowing of Zeus. Hit a woman under any circumstance. um, And at top of page four, shot too many deer so your freezer is overflowing, but the herd thin. And like, that's one that really stood out to me, right? Because it's it's, um, the rest we understand, you know, for those of us raised as Christians, you know, they fit the Christian code of ethics really well, but the shot too many deer, so your freezer is overflowing, but the herd thin is very much this, you know, it's, um, I think it's still recognizable, but it's different, right? This sense of living lightly on the land of seeing it as a necessary symbiosis rather than as a colonization, as a, you know, something that you tame, that you take over. And so on page 122, this is what you're getting at, Todd, you know, um, when Victor is still Reverend Wolf, and he's like, this entire empire of wild, wild is ours in order that we may rejoice in his name. 
And that rejoicing as it's kind of like uh, transformed in Christianity becomes this need to build churches, new homes, better schools, thriving businesses. And he says, this is how we move forward. This is how we heal. To which Zeus says, heal from what? And I just love that line. Yeah. I mean, isn't that sort of the impulse of missionary kind of work and colonialism is that you you basically think believe there's something wrong with these people that needs to be fixed right and we have the answer we have the the medicine right which i mean it's kind of an ironic use of that word considering this book it thinks about medicine from the from the native point of view right which is a whole different thing but i think yeah i mean the more i think about this book the more i'm i'm really fascinated by the tensions that it really explores and when you think about like if you just think about um so the rogaru is kind of like a version of a werewolf and i think um the sort of history of the of that um belief is tied up in the sort of um the mixed um ethnicity of those people the uh, Metis people are I think even the word means sort of mixed blood right and so they're French Canadian and First Nations people um, so they like a, like all pretty much every sort of like folk folk belief and folk tradition in, in the United States has this kind of like mixed up in this right and so here we have that too but like if we just sort of go back to the werewolf the tradition of the werewolf that idea it embedded in that is this um anxiety about the wildness of human beings right that human beings are really um we always like to think of ourselves as being not as not being animals i guess we're separate from the animals of the of the fields right um we're different and we're different because god made us different but then there's always this anxiety that what if we're not (laughs) what if we're not what what if we can do everything else that animals do and that's actually that's not an aberration but that's actually natural and so this anxiety about between civilized and wild, um, which the book really plays with, is something that is embedded in the in the werewolf and the werewolf stories ask us to sort of think about. Now I was thinking when I was reading this about, I don't know, you guys know Angela Carter's work, um, mm-hmm. The Bloody Chamber, and she has a story in there. I think that's just called The Werewolf. But that whole book is sort of like a kind of reimagining of these um, folk traditions um, or folk tales and folk traditions. And anyway, um, the one about the werewolf, in the end, I think, you know, like a lot of the stories in that collection, people give in to, so they give in to the wolf, right? Like there's a whole bunch of stories in that in that book about like Red Riding, Red, uh, Red Riding Hood and where the you sort of flip the flip the script, right? That Red Riding Hood seduces the wolf instead of, instead of being seduced by the wolf or eaten by yeah. the wolf or whatever. And in a way in which these characters sort of give in to their own, their wildness and take off their clothes and run out into the woods, you know, and become something that they are and, no, and don't be afraid of that. And I think if we, I'm, I know I'm super talking for a long time, but I'm sort of working through this in my mind as I talk about it. But I mean, it flips that, the idea that Western colonizers have had about indigenous people, First Nations people, people in Africa, basically brown and black people all over the world, that they are wild and we are not, right? And so we bring to them something which subdues their wildness and they need to give it up. But what if it's actually the opposite? What if the wildness that these people who have who they seek to subdue is actually more more normal more more human more human right and it's that effort to subdue it which is the um the sort of evil and inhuman and unnatural thing you know and that and that was thinking about the um kind of this word natural or unnatural that's where i was um going 
in um, reading the list of things that would bring on kind of the rogue mm-hmm. group and then getting kind of um, stopped in our tracks when we, you know, when we get to the point where if you shoot too many deer, is that, was it deer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what, what happened, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're shooting too many deer, you're, you're, you're disrupting kind of the natural order of things, mm-hmm. right? that that could be seen as evil and so um for me i was kind of connecting wildness to um being a part of a of nature right and so and being a part of nature is not is not evil right and so therefore indigenous people wild perhaps but evil no because it's a part of a natural um natural order of things um and, and introducing kind of the rogaru into the narrative um though he may happen because of you know these transgressive actions he's a part of the natural world right um and you know that and because you know that you try to avoid the transgressive actions that would cause um you to be separated from your community yeah the this has all been really helpful actually because i feel like you know i got to the ending and i was just so angry about zeus that like um that I stopped thinking about what was actually happening to him, right? Like what kind of process this was. Um, but but y'all are right. Like all of the evil that we see in this novel, it's not about the Ruguru. Like certainly Joan's search for Victor is heartbreaking, right? He's lost. She doesn't know where he is. Like this is the driving force of the novel for most of it. And we're like, what happened to Victor, right? And if, if the Ruguru took him, we saw the Ruguru is bad. But we, we later learn, right, that it's more that he was transformed, right? He got taken over and became a Ruguru. And it's Heiser that's the issue who commands him and that has basically made him forget where he came from. And there's a whole host, right, in this church of kind of like, it's this interesting, uh, the the amnesia of whiteness, right? So that like, they've got this kind of ideology that's so powerful, they can forget about the land, they can forget about the people, they all they care about is kind of this message that is primary. Um, And so that's also helping me think about like, uh, what's her name, Cecile. And like how terrible she is, like this woman who at first you think is like just gonna be, you know, a white lady, you know, possibly, you know, some kind of Karen, um, but but then turns into more of a, you know, fatal attraction, um, you know, uh, what's what's the name of the, the character in Fatal Attraction? Lord, I don't remember. It's like Sharon Stone, but that's the actress, so I don't know. <laughs> but before we get to Cecile, I just wanted to say a couple of things. Like one, like I think about this notion of like, you know, indigenous folks and other folks like being um, associated with nature. Like I, part of what I loved about Devonline's work is like this humor that she pokes at at that like notion. So yeah. like in 86, when she was like talking about, she's talking about grandma when like Victor first um, disappears and the grandma says, this is page 86, can you track him? And then uh, Joan says, like through the bush, it's not like you went out on a hunt and it's not like I'm all old timey, geez, uh, no dummy on your phone. <laughs> like, that cracked me up so much. Right? I love that she's like playing with this notion of like, what does this mean? And like sort of these notions of like the elderly wisdom and things like that. Uh, but also to go back to sort of the point of, and like, and this is like also like complicated, right? In terms of like the relationship, particularly of the Métis to, the, to Christianity, right? And this is on page 22. Um, and so this is like one flow and so Joan's mom and Joan's grandma are like fighting and this is her mom Flo says if you're so traditional why are the seniors meeting at the shrine anyway shouldn't you be in a lodge or something mm. and then grandma says we're Métis you fool the church is the lodge and besides <laughs> it's better to be close to the enemy than far away 
keep an eye on things. So I just think it's like really interesting to like, you know, like actually the community besides, I mean, not the like revival church, uh, revival tent part of it, but it's like actually this like complicated history of mm-hmm. sort of Christianity and um, community and like identity. And I was thinking about uh, when, in, like in, um, so when, what is the, oh my God, I'm gonna like not remember the right name, but is that things fall apart? The, yeah. uh, yes, yeah. thank you, know you, right? And there's like the son of like that family who like actually finds like freedom in Christianity, right? So it's this like complicated thing about like individual identity versus like this larger notion of like Christianity's role and like colonialism and mm-hmm. right, sort of like what's happening. So I just thought it was like, I love that she sort of complicates these stories, right? It's not just like this, like Christianity yeah. equals colonialism equals bad, right? But there's sort of this like different ways in which people I- um, understand what that means for themselves. I think it's like what um, Adriana was saying before about when um, the Christianity makes you forget who you are or who you were, that's the problem, right? Because there's so many examples of people in the new world, both you know native people or um, Africans. Like I'm thinking of, of Haiti and the way that you know, Haiti is you know, 90% Catholic and 100% Vodou, right? Or, and so... The combination of those two, those two things, you know, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the, the word that, um, that describes that kind of coming together of two religious um, traditions. Syncretism. Syncretism, yes, right? Where you, and the difference is with syncretism, you don't, you, they, they come together, they combine, but they uh, maintain their separateness, right? Right. They maintain their unique aspects. And so in, in that kind of case, you have people who are sort of, putting, taking two traditions together and building something new out of it, right? Building something. And I think that's what, what Flo's describing, right? The, uh, the, the grandma, at least. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, mayor, the gra- yeah. Yeah. Mayor, yeah. Sorry that the, the, the lodge is the, the, the church is the lodge. The church yeah. is the lodge. They're the same thing. That, and because these people, the Meti are, are a people that are a mixture of traditions, a mixture of ethnicities, a mixture right. of histories that they are sort of taking parts of both of everything that they are putting it together into something that makes sense for them. Um, but but what I like about the novel too, is that it really, um, and I think you were getting at this too, Anita, is that it really gets at how challenging it is for this community to kind of maintain their identity and survive as such, right? The whole first opening of the novel, like I started reading this and honestly, I was gasping. I was like, this is brilliantly done, right? It kind of swoops us into this community and it has us think about how that land was taken over by settlers and kind of shaped both in early days of settling, but then through gentrification. And it ends with this kind of vision of like, you know, these, you know, people coming in with money and able to build, um, like pools and, and uh, you know, dive docks on waterfront, exactly. Um, And so you have this whole incursion, which is both about ideology, right, and Christianity, and it's about money and capitalism. And, um, and so on page 21, you know, like they're fighting about working in the, in the mines. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the Jones brothers are thinking of working in the mine during their off season and uh, their mother is trying to defend them. And Mare is like, no, you can't work in the mine. And so finally it gets to a fever point where Flo says, what are we supposed to do? Stay poor? Would that prove to you that we're Indian enough? 
And Mara says, no, my love, we are supposed to stay right with community. That's how we know we're Indian enough. And I, I'm so like, just like entranced by this um, parallel, right? This kind of, um, what's the word of the contrast that's built there, right? Prove that we're Indian enough versus know we're Indian enough and staying right with the community and all of all that means, which actually in this case, like going back to like some of Todd's initial points, like are about kind of like recognizing the Rougarou that the Rougarou exists, that that's part of the stories and the wildness that, that is, is the community and, um, and, and staying right then with the Rougarou and with each other. So this brings me to bone salt. I know I brought- Oh wait, Cecilia. I'm sorry. We could also talk more about Cecile. I cut you off when, if we wanted to talk more about Karen. Well, you know, we can go we'll back, back to, to Cecile that. later because yeah. right now, like I'm also intrigued by the bone salt. Yeah. And by the way, we get the, like the idea of this bone salt, which is something that Mare uh, uses to kind of try to ward off the Rougarou. Ajin. And, well, Ajin and Ajin later tells, later um, tells uh, Joan about it and how to use yeah. it, but it grows on them mm -hmm. and so, they, yeah. they cut it off their bodies and they grate it up. Like, tell me what you think about this. Cause I, it's like an interesting image instead of metaphors, but like as a, it's also body horror for me. So I'm like, <laughs> well, I, I love the idea of like um, um, harvesting from like both Arts. growing and then harvesting yeah. from your own body to protect <laughs> yourself. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's something which is, which is perceived as a kind of um, invasion of the body or uh, something that's gone wrong, like a, I don't even know what the medical terms are to describe it, but that then like you use that, yeah. right? Yeah, that it's a tumor or something like that, right? And then you use it as a, um, to, to protect yourself. Well, I think, I don't know this for sure, but my, my guess is like that there are lots of different traditions where pro uh, problematic or unusual sort of parts, growths or parts of the body or something are used in that same way because they're magical, because they, mm -hmm. because they're, they're unusual. It looks like you want to say something, Adriana. So please say it. I, I mean, I just, I love, you made me think Todd, that like there's this shift from uh, in Western culture, thinking about body growths as something you're right. Like that. I said, body horror yeah. as something disgusting, something that needs to be taken care of something yeah. got to get rid of it made normal again. And you're pointing out that like one of the powerful things about this is it's taking that thing and, and seeing how, powerful and useful and in that way kind of how beautiful it is yeah no i think yeah absolutely right so if you have something wrong with your body and in you know if i'm just thinking about right now in sort of western medical culture if i have if i grow a fifth sixth finger on one hand or something i go to the hospital they take it off it disappears medical waste it is, it, yeah it doesn't even belong to me anymore right i probably mm -hmm. had to sign a waiver which says I don't even own that anymore, that it goes to, it can go for research or whatever. It's gone. <laughs> I never see it again. Right. But in, in this way of thinking, you know, something that is extra on the body is something that is, it actually can be like a gift. Right. And it's some, it's not something that you just have to get away from you and make it disappear. It's something that you keep. And like, so she, yeah. Mare buried hers, right? She buried her so it would be safe yeah. so that subsequent um, generations could use it if they wanted to, right? If they could find it, right? I think that's really super powerful. And it's like, a, again, like this sort of changing, this changing relationship to the body that is really 
maybe different in you know contemporary Western society. I mean, it makes you think about how we do death in contemporary um, Western yeah. society, which is like you you don't see the but like if someone dies, you might see them in an open casket, maybe. But like we're not that far removed from when someone dies, they laid in the house out on a board for like days, right? Like a couple days or something like that. That the, the dead body was something that you had to confront that you that was a part of the ritual and the ceremony of moving on right so this is just a sort of another I mean I I I hesitate in a lot of stuff that I'm saying and I'm so glad Anita that you kind of brought in earlier this sort of check on my you know native and brown people are like are naturally more wild or whatever (laughs) I'm glad you put a check on that so I definitely want to sort of be careful about sort of saying like you know um, non-white people think about this differently and blah, blah, blah. But there are ways in which they do sort of think about it differently. And I could certainly say that in contemporary culture, we do not do death the way that people did death just 50, 60, 100 years ago, much different. And we're much more, we're much less connected to our bodies and um, ways in which our bodies can do things that maybe we think aren't normal is much more creates much more anxiety to us I think now than maybe it did before we have different ways of dealing with that anxiety perhaps so I don't know um, far or not. <laughs> just well I think it's I think like her brother's case is like interesting to think about that's so at 144 okay. and so this is Ajin talking about I think George um And she says, your brothers started out as a lump under the skin of his forearm. It swelled up real good. And the doctor said that it was a sliver infected or something. And then that it was a cyst. They weren't sure. Those doctors never are. (laughs) But Angelique knew. She tried to tell your brother, but he wasn't interested. He wanted it out right away, but the hospital wouldn't move too fast. Said it wasn't life-threatening, so he'd have to wait. And I think this part, last part is kind of interesting, right? And she says, pretty sure that's why it grew so damn fast because it knew it was going to be uh, taken out. And then Joan says... Joan couldn't help it. So this random growth had consciousness. Listen, you, Ajin pointed the greater at her face. Enough with this Enough bullshit. With this bullshit. <laughs> Funny. I was about to say the same. And then they like go on to talk about that. So I just thought it was like interesting. Because I feel like there's like these moments when Joan is also skeptical, right? I mean, I think this is where, and when, <laughs> like when she brings up the bones first and she's like, what? Salty bones? The stuff that goes in like stock? Like what are you talking about? <laughs> right? <laughs> or like, you know, oh, um, do you remember where she's kind of, I think it's like Ajit was going on about something and like Joan's like, oh my gosh, are we going to do this like, you know, old time medicine thing or, you know, so she's like, Joan's like an interesting character in terms of like how she's situated in terms of like how she's thinking about these, like, you know, as she put it, like old timey, old timey ways and like whether or not she actually believes the growth is like mm-hmm. actually like something magical or is it's just like, you know, um, just like something that Ajit's making up. So yeah, I don't know, right? Like, I think and this is, I think, also like why it's cool, to, you know, why like novels are great because it's like there isn't any sort of like definitive statement that she's making about mm-hmm. this is how do people think about this. This is how <laughs> you know what I mean. I feel like she's like I mean, there, there are books like, like that, thing, right? but this is not one of right. them. I think right. that's right. what makes the makes the book better. You know, that ambiguity and that kind of space to negotiate these things for the characters to negotiate them, but also for us as readers to negotiate yeah. them. You know, and and I think you know again because this this um, book starts with a group of people who are not you know they're not rooted in any particular place they've been moved around their history and background is mixed up they are you know they're part part of first nations but they also are catholic and they i mean there's there's just this all this kind of um combination of things 
which make it so that you can't say any one certain thing about them, right? Because they're this uh, amalgam of all these sort of different things. So I think that's um, that's important to keep in mind. Um, well, and I mean, also, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, it, part of the way the novel starts um, in the prologue, you know, when we get that whole story of like Arcan, this place and, and the people who are there, and it doesn't yet name them as uh, Metis, right? Mm. It gives the stories of like the French voyagers and the First Nations, Oh, actually, it does mention the Métis people Métis who journeyed people. from the Manitoba. Um, but it, um, it then brings up this term half-breed, which, of course, in the U.S. is, a, is not a you know, good term, right? Like, um, it's a slur, yeah. But in, apparently in parts of Canada, it has legal and social meaning that it wouldn't have here. Um, and, and that term, you know, this idea of half-breedness becomes this kind of consistent thread um, that I think haunts Joan, especially and her brothers, as they navigate what does being Indian mean um, and whether they have a claim to it in particular ways um, or whether you know, the stories are theirs in the same way that they want them to be. Yeah. But what's really interesting is that like it's also a gendered, very gendered story that we get here, right? Like Zeus, we, I mean, we get Zeus, but he's a kid. We get mainly kind of Jones negotiation with the matriarchy, um, with these stories passed down from, from grandmother to mother, who's also skeptical, right? Flo is a hilarious character too. And yeah. then Joan. But I think even the term Indian is like contested, right? Because it's like, mm -hmm. remember when she's in the bar with that guy and like he uses the term and she literally like punches him and punches says, him we're not face. from yeah. India, right? Or when Zeus says, they're saying it's an Indian summer and Mara right. says something Who like- Who says that? Yeah. <laughs> Who's they? What does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, but the women part is interesting because I think- um, I sort of saying this before the uh, we started recording, but like the author herself, right, talks about how for her, like this book was like very much about indigenous. Well, she says it's about indigenous love and then about women. And this is her quote. And she said, it's women with agency, autonomy, who own themselves, have sex, um, healthy sex lives, who are just living joy. And it's about the weight of being an indigenous woman. And the heaviest love we carry is the abundance of love. Um, so she says, like, in a lot of ways, like, she thinks of it as, like, a very traditional story in, tr in that it's, like, a story of love and particularly kind of, like, how women um, kind of, yeah, like, live in these, like, seemingly matriarchal families because the men are, like, sort of absent and, you know. Um, so, yeah, like, I think that has a lot to do with, like, how the story set up is, is about the women. I mean, I guess we do have those chapters with Victor in between. Victor and the... What's it called in the forest or something? Well, it's that whole series where we get Victor yeah. kind of. Um, they called something? I don't Victor know. in uh, the forest, most of them, I think. That seems like that's the background. In but the it woods. Kind of, yeah, it seems like it's the Roguru and Victor trying mm -hmm. to break out of that consciousness or being right. taken over completely by yeah. the Roguru's yeah, consciousness. I, that's another thing that was interesting to me about this book is um, when you're, um, I suppose like when you're thinking about being taken over somehow, being, um, I don't know, uh, what are they, you know, like. Haunted, not haunted. Haunted, no, um, I don't possessed. know what you, possessed, yeah, maybe that's the right word. Um, but anyway, like, how do you, how do you render that in a novel, right? And the kind of mm. architecture of consciousness in the novel mm -hmm. is is interesting to me and reminded me of some other books that I've read um, that deal with this. And I was thinking of like, um, 
American Gods, you know, Neil Gaiman's American Gods, where there's sort of like, um, there's like the, I think he calls it uh, front stage and backstage or something like that, right? So you can actually go into someone, a character's consciousness and have a conversation or something. And so I, I was really thinking like, okay, when I'm in those chapters that are Victor in the woods, you know, are we inside of Victor's head or is Victor's consciousness somewhere else? You right. know, like how to think about that. But as far as the book yeah. goes, it's a whole separate chapter. And right. we might get like, there were times when the time overlaps, right? Like we might get a chapter that's describing something happening. And then we go into Victor's, like wherever he is, and he's right. experiencing it. Like he's hearing Joan yell to him, right. or he's here, he's, he's, he's experiencing part of that. Right. And the whole thing is like, can he escape from the woods, right? And so it gets even more interesting in the in, in the last few chapters when he finally does escape and he has his sort of ultimate showdown with the Rougarou in the woods right. and is able to escape. But his like initial chapters right. though, he's like thinking about his family, right? He's thinking about his grandpa, he's thinking yeah. about his uncle. Um, so that's before he's like encountered the Rougarou, is that right? Well, I think it's in the midst. It's in the I midst. Think all of the okay. Victor in the Woods chapters are... You know, he's encountered the Rougarou or the Rougarou's after him. And okay. um, yeah. Yeah, but they haven't had like their final like, encounter um, where he, where the Rougarou totally kind of takes over. Okay. It's, um, yeah. Yeah. So he goes through a process. Oh, that's right? true. So, yeah. Because yeah. it says something was watching him, but, but it's what, not like, it's not like right there. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but this is reminding me that it's very much, um, you know, grim fairy tales uh, where mm -hmm. the woods are a symbol yeah. of the unconscious, right? Yeah. They're a symbol of um, the darkness of hu humanity, right? Mm -hmm. Of um, all of our like hidden uh, desires and um, deepest fears. Well, that goes back to what we were saying before, right? Like the danger is not some monster coming out of nowhere the danger is really the us the monster, you. right the monster yeah. is just yeah. a representation of the of what's yeah. inside of us right? their own bad behavior and yeah. what we're capable so why of doesn't the rogaru take over cecile then i feel like she's bad like why is, is she it is she native though yeah is it only native. like the metis then who get taken over because robes oh robes native too that's true yeah. yeah, everybody. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, okay. at, at one point, Joan asks Mare, I think, whether the Ruguru is just for the Métis. Oh. And um, I don't have it at hand to give you a good answer. But there but was it an is like it, it is. A, yeah, I mean, it is the Métis. Okay. Like a uh, specifically Métis story. Okay. Yeah, it's a Métis okay. story, right? So you have... Yeah. Um, and I was there, you know, so there's, of course, the Loop Guru, which is French, and then you got the German version of it. Right. And then there, so to use that name situates it, and that's the way she seems to do it in the novel. Okay. In okay. The tradition. But let's so get to Cecile, the Karen. Yeah, talk about Cecile. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I didn't understand Ivy either. I feel like she sort of got the short end of the deal in so many ways, yeah. right? I feel like, oh, oh my she God. got burned up. I know. Look, I was like, oh no. One, I'm just saying that as soon as I started reading that chapter with Heiser, where he's talking about um, Ivy um, fellating him, um, while I think they're oh, in a car. Yeah. 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 Um, and like, you know, it serves two purposes, right? It one right, highlights what a terrible person he is mm -hmm. because, you know, we're doing it, we're focalized through his mind and we're kind of understanding how he understands this, this whole encounter. But two, we're seeing how women are treated within that missionary group. That's true. Um, mm -hmm. So that like they're, they, you know, it, um, 
it, it, we get that kind of virgin versus whore dichotomy really clearly laid out, as opposed to in Joan's family, right, where they're complex and full characters who, mm. you know, are neither good nor bad. I mean, Joan is a really interesting, complicated character, right? We know she's been through tough times. We know she's faced down um, alcoholism at the very least. But there's also, I think there's a couple of places where it suggests that maybe maybe drug use of some kind. Yeah, um, she was in a cult, right? And yeah. She got hooked oh, on drugs, right. yeah. That was Cecile. Wait, that was that was Cecile. And that was Cecile, Cecile was in the cult, but Joan yeah. also did had drugs. Um, did Didn't drugs. She had like a a thing with a guy out in California or something like that. That was Cecile. That was Cecile. That was Cecile. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm gonna keep insisting that that but, was. But aren't you sure? <laughs> but look how cool it is because actually, in that way, Joan and Cecile are very much like positioned parallel. as um, as parallel and as foils. Yeah. Right, Cecile is who. Uh, Reverend Wolf would choose if he stayed as Reverend Wolf, right. uh -huh. the white woman, right, right, who kind of like then whitens the the native preacher and gives him legitimacy in a larger population, yeah. um, and who is more kind of virginal, you know, quote virginal, mm -hmm. um, whereas Joan is, you know, his uh, connection to native identity. Mm -hmm. And I think I you were saying this, Adriana, that the women in the story who we're supposed to sort of um, think of, we're supposed to emulate or think about as being good people like, you know, Mare and, um, and Flo and uh, who's the- Ajin. Ajin, yeah, Ajin in particular. Like I was thinking about her last scene when she's about to, you know, confront the Roguru that's come home. She's just had sex, right? Like she's just waking <laughs> up after having sex with this guy yeah. and she's about to kick him out. And like that kind of thing, I mean, I think those characters are so interesting because they're sort of hard living, smoking, drinking, you know, like sex having ladies. And like, ladies. that's just, that's just, that's just <laughs> it, right? Like they go to the bar, they do whatever. And, yeah. but they, you know, the thing about Ajin is she's connected to the tradition. She's a storyteller. She's a keeper of the stories, right? And that's the thing that you need to keep a community and a tradition, you know, alive. And so, yeah. you know, the, 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 the moral judgment on them is not about, you know, how they're living that way. It's a different kind of judgment, right? So you're reminding me um, that there's this, uh, I mean, the Ajin is hilarious, right? With the, you're my booty call, let a woman sleep. <laughs> um, but you're yes. also reminding me that, um, that Joan, right, when she's looking for Victor and she's gotten to that point where she thinks she's not going to find him, I think she, like the tent and the, you know, she somehow missed them. So she goes to that bar. Right. And she ends up um, drinking with that guy and dancing with From him. Alberta. Yeah. And I really just, I loved how it was portrayed, right, that um, she was not a bad person for needing human touch, yeah. for needing to like find some... Uh, you know, some emotional sustenance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can I make a really strange uh, comparison here? Um, because... Uh, no, Todd, uh, no. Yeah, <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm doing it anyway. Because um, Todd never listens to us. So. Lucia, that's not true. Um, Lucia and I have been watching The Wire recently, and the character uh, McNulty in The Wire is yeah. uh, kind of like uh joan except that he uses women and in yeah. that scene with joan in the bar her intention is not to use that guy but mm -hmm. to feel close to someone right so i mean like you see it's pretty common to see men 
represented or portrayed in this way, right? You go to a bar, you get drunk, you hook up, whatever, and there's no kind of judgment on the man. A woman who does that would be judged harshly, right? But here we just get to see or experience why she's doing it, what she feels. I, I agree with you. Like, I love that chapter. And when she was, you know, as much as it made me nervous because I did not want her to to, to cheat on, on Victor. True, me too. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't want that to happen. But I also understood, like, why she would do it and what she was feeling. Yeah. And our hand, you know, she his hand was touching her small of her back and then down it was progressing and you're like, oh, I know how that happens. I know how easy that is for that to happen, you know? Yeah. And so it was, I just thought it was really, as as with a lot of the, the scenes or references in the book that are sort of about like being in bars and being in um, hotels and like, I don't know, these sort of um, places in that are seen as seedy or that yeah, are- I was gonna say seedy was what I was saying. Yeah, <laughs> but like, if you grow up like I did in a rural community, like those are most of the places, <laughs> like most of the places are like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, like most of the places are a dirty old, you know, um, hotel on the outskirts of town. Or look, we're nine months into a pandemic. Those <laughs> sound amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we want a CD bar to go to. I want to go to that one. The place with just the concrete floor. <laughs> Um, can I ask a quick like going back to Cecile so she wanted to kill Ivy so she could have the reverend even though it was clear that Ivy wasn't after the reverend right right I can't remember why she ends up like killing Ivy I I think it's because she actually plans to send reverend wolf back in to find Ivy so she kills Ivy like her plan is to leave Ivy there her escape yes tell reverend wolf you have to go back for Ivy kill Um, him and kill him. Oh, right. Okay, 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 okay. So she but can course, take his place, right? She wants to be... She wants to be the, right. the leader. Yeah. yeah. I see. Got it. Okay, okay. I couldn't quite remember. I was like, why did she end up killing poor Ivy? Because and then I, um, Joan would have gotten blamed for the whole thing. That, 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 whole, that whole chapter, I got to the... Because I... Um, where I'm just I got to the end and I was like okay Cecile okay I see when you. she gets blown up you mean <laughs> I see you Cecile I see you like, oh <laughs> my god it's it's so graphic right on page yes. 254 above Ivy's dead face sitting where she <laughs> left it on the desk was the last can of lighter fluid the label had burnt off and the sides were bulging dangerously she sees her death it's coming. Mm-hmm. She took a deep breath, steepled her hands, and gave it all she had. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. And then that's the last we hear of Cecile. She, she does not come up in the rest of the novel. So the right, she is not, She's not clearly remembered. not righteous enough. <laughs> oh my God. I was not expecting that. But for us, <laughs> we remember her. And we see her. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, it's just choking on my water thinking about Cecile. <laughs> Good stuff. That was dramatic. I was like, I, I that was unexpected. Very dramatic. And especially the next page, which you don't have to read aloud, but that next page is truly. Oh my like, gosh. Yeah. A new burning bush. I was yeah. like, mm. <laughs> oh. So I think. Yeah, I feel like I miss so much of these things because I'm not like, you know, I didn't grow up with Christianity. So I'm like, I'm sure there's like so much in here that I like just like went over my head that I was like, oh, I see now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the burning bush is what God created um, uh, to bring the Ten Commandments, correct? Am I, am yeah, I right? Yeah, he, 
Yeah, he appeared to Moses in the to Moses. So I guess the seal is kind of like being given the Ten Commandments of her death. Well, but then, (laughs) and I guess also, if we were to go to page two fifty five, I mean, the ultimate, I think, disappointment for Cecile is that all of this belief just turns out to be fire, right? Mm -hmm. That it actually has nothing behind it, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the the ultimate kind of. Although doesn't she she sees Jesus though, right? What what is or no is that? Well, but she. she moves oh i see it's just the but, flame abundant yeah. okay yeah, but she see the thing is like she believes and nobody else does like you know uh the reverend's a rougarou and Chrysler <laughs> doesn't care right and you know so so he she's she's the the true believer truest and, believer at least truest believer right and yeah. of course the whole church is just a scam right to get people's land you know so I mean, in some ways, that's oh. another reason to have some sympathy for the poor lady who ends up offing herself accidentally, trying to get in control. And I don't think she wants to just try like, to kill somebody else. By the way, yeah, so, well, offs herself, try to kill somebody else. Just, hey, you, you know. got to break some eggs. You're gonna make an omelet. You know what I'm saying? Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, from her point of view. From her point of right, view. Right. From her point of view. I don't okay. think she's evil, or I actually don't think she's evil. I think she's she's Misled. like very very committed. Okay. <laughs> This, this, it's worth talking a little bit more about Cecile clearly, right? Because yeah. you were right, Todd, although you thought it was Joan, she was in <laughs> a cult, right? Like, so Cecile, like, you know, That's was insane. in a cult. Um, she had gone to California. She got involved with this guy. She ended right. up getting hooked on like meth and Lord knows what right. else. And she pulled herself out of that. And actually, now I'm not remembering exactly how, but it was connected to religion. And there was a way in which from one obsession, she went to this mm-hmm. other obsession. Right? Transfer addiction. Exactly. exactly. I love it when we have terms. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is that, is, does a therapist say that to her? Yes. I mean, she doesn't use the term transfer addiction. That's just Crystal's brilliance. Um, but yes. she says something about, hey, um, do you think maybe that you're doing this just like you did the drugs? All this That's- is to say, I like Cecile. <laughs> she's good people. You're like I. <laughs> she dead now, but you know she's good people. <laughs> okay, you know who I feel for? I feel for Ivy. Okay, the poor woman, like used by Heiser, killed by Cecile. I'm just saying. I feel like I didn't know her well enough to. <laughs> I mean, it's unfair for sure. Yes. She's very much abused in this novel, but uh, yes, I, and, I and we don't enough. get to know her. That's the whole point. I yeah, feel like Cecile gets a whole backstory. That's a good and, point, you know. But like poor Ivy, who just gets off, <laughs> we yeah. don't even get her backstory. Honestly. Yeah, that is true. Anyway, um, also I'm just laughing because there is somebody named Karen in the church. I think, or uh, <laughs> no, it was her um, stepmom. It was Cecile's stepmom was named Karen. Oh, so, oh anyway. nice. Taught by the best. Yes, yes. So. Um, <laughs> All right. I, so maybe this is a place to wrap up as we talk about how much we have sympathy for, you know. You're welcome, killers. America. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's go around and maybe we'll have some more uh, oh, uplifting man. things to share with y'all in terms of what we're reading, watching, listening to, eating, whatever you want to talk about. Uh, Adriana, you want to start us off? Sure thing. Um, so it is my birthday, which means that um, I, thank you. Um, I have all these sweet things to eat. I bought myself cupcakes this morning. I mean, I guess nice. I will have to give my son a few cupcakes, but um, but some of you them are for me. 
right? <laughs> and, um, and a good friend gave me a, a slice of pie, which Ooh. looks delicious. So I can't wait for that. And then I, I told you all about my obsession with Grey's Anatomy, how I rewatched the whole series from beginning to like most recent a couple of podcasts ago. And, and uh, well, it's back on and they are doing the whole pandemic thing. Wait, and they're making new episodes? Yeah. They're making new episodes. They're clearly how, like but... doing that Hollywood quarantine thing. Yeah. Uh, and they are like facing up to the pandemic. They are talking about the, the weight of this on um, medical workers. Mm -hmm. They're talking about medical racism. They're talking about the differential impact um, on black and brown people. So like they're like, Grey's Anatomy is a lot right now, but it's also like, I feel like I just want everybody who's a naysayer to watch it and to get a sense of what it might look like in an actual hospital. I feel like they're doing a really good job of um, putting us in the, in the heart of the pandemic. Thank you, Todd. Um, first of all, again, I will say happy birthday, Adriana. And I want to thank Adriana who because she is a uh, an amazing elevated human being sent us all like the this little gift of chocolate that looked like celestial bodies or whatever like the mm -hmm. the like planets or the milky way or whatever and it was because y'all like, are my stars i got this little box of like <laughs> these chocolates i ate that i ate them immediately they were delicious <laughs> they look beautiful i wish i actually wish i'd taken a picture of them before i ate them but i wanted to thank you for sending that that really yes. made my day thank you thank um, you I mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago that Lucia and I are, I, I'm re-watching, but I convinced Lucia to watch The Wire. It only took me 15 years. <laughs> and, um, so we have now begun to watch The Wire, um, which I, will, I still maintain is the best television show ever made, and everyone should watch it. And uh, so I just want to put a plug in for that. And I also want to put a plug in for a book that I mentioned a couple of <laughs> It's, I'm going there. I mentioned a couple of uh, episodes ago that I was reading. It's called uh, Blacktop Wasteland by, I think it's uh, S.A. Cosby, I think is the author. And it's my favorite book of the year. I loved it. It's a crime novel, fast cars, shooting folks, stealing, robbing banks and stuff like that. And uh, it's just great. And I'm trying to decide how much to call you out right now. Well, <laughs> I mentioned it. And they were like, well, why don't we read it? And I was like, I don't think you'd like it. <laughs> and I said that because, you know, the characters are, they're mostly men. There are women characters, um, but it's, it's, it's like a book about men, men's cult. It's sort of a locker room book or something. I don't know how you would describe it. Um, you should see <laughs> men, their men faces right now. Badly. You see <laughs> the faces of my, of my, of my team right now. They are looking at me and saying, just wrap it up for Christ's sake. I'm sorry. <laughs> But I have to say, I don't really know how to talk about. So, so many, so many crime novels are like this, right? When, you know, the characters yeah. are criminals and they're men and they're, they're sexist and they engage in objectionable behavior and all that. Um, at least this character in this book is trying to save his family and trying to be a good father and all that kind of stuff. Um, there are other characters who uh, engage in conversation that is objectionable in many ways and activities which are objectionable. But the book itself, I, I actually want one of you guys to read it just so you can tell me. <laughs> That it's not how bad it is. Just, yeah. I just wanted to say, like, you can be criminal and not be sexist. I'm just saying. That's, that's you, could be. <laughs> you could be. These guys aren't. These guys aren't. 
Right. Right. All right. Thank you, Capitalism (laughs) capitalism is definitely like a producer of racism, right? Like we agree that these things co, you know, are co-produced. Absolutely. But we don't think that criminality is co-produced. Is a producer of sexism. (laughs) No. No. Exactly. Wow, guys. Wow, guys. Wow. We're going to move on to Crystal because I'm sure she will give us a much better thing to read. What are you you doing, Crystal? Wow. So I've been reading for like um, (laughs) a little while this book called Patsy by Nicole Dennis Ben. And it's about a Jamaican woman who leaves her home of Jamaica to follow one of her childhood friends to United States, New York, who she actually loved as a child. Um, And so she leaves her home. She leaves her, her daughter to kind of start over um, and to be with this childhood friend, but the childhood friend kind of rejects her and her love. And so she is navigating kind of life as an immigrant woman in Jamaica while having left her young daughter back home. So- Is it um, contemporary set? Is it like- Yeah, yeah. contemporary so sounds great yeah Yeah, and and it's it's uh it it is it's a great moving story um and i'm just taking my time with it because it is so kind of emotional yeah yeah it sounds Um, tough actually the book i'm going to talk about is also emotional so i read hanya yanagihara's uh little life and i think this came out like a few years ago but it's like literally it's been a while since I've like literally sobbed through like chapters of a novel. But And I don't know if it was like the pandemic, but it was just, you know, it's like a really beautiful but like devastating look at like notions of like loneliness and like consent and boundaries. And this notion of like whether you have to be a good person to deserve love, like, you know, deserve love from your parents, to deserve love from like your friends and from. So basically follows these four men who were all uh roommates in college and it kind of you know kind of goes back and forth in time so it did take me a little while to get into it because it's like four men and you're like who is this again you know (laughs) I was like trying to like sort through the characters and I I don't know like maybe it's some sort of like literary like thing right like it's part of like the confusion of like who they are in terms of like leading into their each other's like identities and lives um but yeah it's like a pretty like big novel but it was like really good and um so if you need something to like emote to and like fictional characters to emote to I would <laughs> highly recommend it um yeah it's a little life by Hanya Yanagihara okay so our next book we're gonna do a classic uh, mostly because actually I haven't read it but everybody else has we're going to be reading Passing by Nella Larson. Yay! Um, yay! Woo! So I'm looking forward to reading it for the first time, and I guess everybody else will be revisiting it. Um, so yeah, so that's it. So you can find our podcast in all the places, and please keep wearing those masks, washing those hands, keeping those six feet away, and please, 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 please stay home. Thank you all for listening. You do and- not need to see your family. I'm telling you. This is just going to be Todd's thing for a while. (laughs) I'm just saying. I I have to, you know what? Can I just, this is the last thing I'm going to say. Lucia was like, how do you feel lately? And I'm like, I'm actually really great right now because I don't have to get up in two days at the crack of dawn and drive halfway across the country to see some some relatives. I miss them. I I would love Mm -hmm. to see them, but I don't want all the stuff that's involved with getting there. So enjoy that part of it, you guys. I mean, I know you're going to miss your family. I know you're going to miss the, you know, the, the rituals and everything and the hanging out and all that, but you won't have to travel. Travel sucks these days. So like, enjoy that. Enjoy, enjoy that. that. Enjoy that. Yes. Yeah, so stay, stay alive. Enjoy being home and stay time. alive. Exactly. Yes. Stay alive. Right. And keep right. others Sacrifice. alive. Right? Like, yeah. Absolutely. Sacrifice this year for, for more years in the future. Yes. Think about yes. the, think about the parties and celebration we're going to have this summer. 
Oh yeah, Ooh, who is vaccinated, man? We're gonna pitch a bitch this summer, man. We're gonna. <laughs> so stay alive until then. It's gonna stay be alive to look party in the summer. Absolutely. <laughs> until then, we're sending you virtual hugs from the safety of our homes. So thank you for listening, and bye. 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 Happy holiday, everybody. This has been another brand new episode of The Drip, recorded remotely from St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Northfield, Minnesota, and Washington, D.C. The show is written, produced, and directed by Anita Chikatur, Adriana Estel, Crystal Moten, and me, Todd Lawrence, the All Spoilers Collective. Please check out our show notes at thedrippingspoilers.com to learn more about the Medi Nation of Ontario and about our indigenous friends and neighbors whose ancestors were the original stewards and caretakers of the land we all occupy. We'll be back next month with a new episode on Nella Larson's classic Harlem Renaissance novel, Passing. Till then, stay safe and healthy, wear those masks, and please stay home for the holidays if you can. Peace. Peace.